Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Kiora this is a special Our Changing World podcast from Radio New Zealand National. I'm Alison Balance, and I'm finding out what New Zealand biologists think about the sequencing of the genome of the North Island brown kiwi. What does this bird have in common with these birds? The North Island brown kiwi has just joined New Zealand's kia and riflemen in a select club of birds that have had their complete genome sequenced. To find out more about the kiwi genome, which has just been published by a group of German and Australian researchers in the journal Genome Biology, I give a few New Zealand biologists a call. First I catch up with conservation genomics researcher Tammy Steves at the University of Canterbury. How many bird genomes have been sequenced? About 50 bird species genomes that have been published to date, and that's out of about 10,000 bird species uh, known around the world. And how many New Zealand bird genomes? We've just got three. We've got the Kia, the Rifleman, and now uh, the North Island Brown Kiwi. I have to say that three out of 50 is not bad for a tiny little country. It is not bad at all. And is that because our birds are quite unique? In part, it is, absolutely. Um, the initial work that included the Kia and the Rifleman was a part of a, a really large consortium that was interested in ensuring that we had essentially almost every branch of, uh, on the bird family tree, and two of those branches included the Kia and then the Rifleman. So how are bird genomes different to mammal genomes, say the human genome? Are they, are they bigger? Are they smaller? Oh, yeah, no, they're definitely much smaller. They're about the third the size of the human genome, and that's one of the things that makes them so fascinating. And also the genome, genomic data that's coming online, that much more useful um, for, from conservation perspective. So usually what we talk about is that the bird genomes are very small, they're compact, which means they don't have a lot of what we call repetitive elements, that's repeating DNA sequences, and they're also highly conserved. So when we, even when we look across very distantly related birds, they have very, very similar genomes. What's the size of the kiwi genome compared to other birds? Is it very similar? It's a bit bigger, actually. So on average, a bird genome is something about a billion base pairs, and it looks like the kiwi genome is about one and a half billion base pairs. Now, all five species of New Zealand kiwi are threatened, and so how is knowing the genome of one of them, the North Island brown kiwi, how's it going to help us with the conservation? Having this genome in one way will make it much easier for us to develop genomic resources for other kiwi. Because those bird genomes are so highly conserved, it's really likely that the genome of the North Island brown kiwi will help us generate resources or genomic resources for the other species as well. Can you just explain highly conserved in a genetic sense? Oh, sure. What it means is that not only do different species have 
the same genes or very similar looking genes, they're actually found in the same place in the genome. Um, and, and that's really, really exciting because in stark contrast to mammalian genomes where you see lots of differences in where you find genes and what chromosomes they're on and actually what the actual sequences look like, so that's actually that string of C's and A's and T's and G's, they can be very, very different. But in contrast for birds, those strings of sequences are actually very similar, and we find them in the same place, and not only so much in the same place, but where we find one gene in one bird species, we're going to find it beside a similar gene in another bird species. So it means that these genomes can be a lot more powerful from a comparative uh, point of view. One of the things that surprises me about this paper is that it's about our iconic kiwi, but there are no New Zealand-based scientists involved in it. Yeah, I think it's a really valid observation, and it's certainly something that hasn't gone unnoticed in, uh, in the community here in New Zealand. It certainly doesn't matter from the quality of the science. Uh, the science is very, very good, and it's very, very exciting. But I do think that if we're, if we're going to be working or generating data for essentially what is our national icon, I think it would be a really good idea for the researchers doing that work to reach out to New Zealand-based researchers. Uh, there's lots of different types of expertise that we have locally and that we can easily contribute to this work at different levels. Having said this, the paper itself is great as a standalone, and what I would like to see is moving forward, particularly on the conservation front, that we see the involvement of local expertise. In terms of conservation, how is this going to help us and where can we go with it? I hesitate to provide a really exact response in regards to North Island brown kiwi because that's not actually a study species that I work with. Um, and that's in part because one of my uh, biggest statements that I make when I'm, when I'm collaborating or talking to people about conservation research in New Zealand is that if you're going to be doing it, particularly as a conservation geneticist or a conservation genomicist, you need to be doing it in collaboration with your end user. So whether that happens to be a Department of Conservation Recovery Group or a local hapu or iwi or relevant runanga, we need to be making sure that the science that we're doing is responsive to the needs of those groups, particularly when it comes to conservation management. That was Tammy Steves at the University of Canterbury and now Helen Taylor from the University of Otago, a Kiwi genetics expert who also works with the Kiwi Recovery Programme to conserve kiwi. North Island brown kiwi genome, great, What's that actually going to mean on the ground? On the ground, immediately, it doesn't actually mean that much. But what it does mean is that we're making progress towards being able to get uh, large-scale genetic uh, data sets for these birds uh, much easier and also much more cheaply. Um, so the, the genome will act as a guide for doing things like genome by sequencing um, across North Island Browns and across other species of kiwi as well. And the nice thing about those techniques is it allows us to get really high-resolution genetic data for kiwi species so that we can make better inferences about what genetic diversity they have, what is the population structure, and all those kind of things that can be helpful in informing conservation management. These are questions that we are able to address with, with current genetic tools. Um, what genomic data means is that we can just get at those um, questions in a much more high-resolution way and get much more accurate answers. Is having the genome of the North Island brown kiwi in a sense going to make 
doing the same thing for the other kiwi species much easier? Yes, it, it's nice. It acts as a kind of guide. So um, assuming that their genome is, is accurate and, and well put together, we can use that as a guide when we're sequencing the genomes of, of other closely related species and look for the bits that match up when we're trying to you know, piece together that jigsaw. It gives us kind of a bit of more of a, a picture on the box that we can look at in terms of how we should be assembling things. In terms of what they claim about the genome for the kiwi, they, they were saying that it's lost some of its... Uh, vision receptor genes, it seems to be particularly active in, in its olfactory receptor genes. That's not really a surprise because we already know those things about kiwi, don't we? Yeah, I think it's, it's nice to see that confirmed and it's always interesting if you can, you can pinpoint the exact region of the genome where that's happening and it's certainly interesting from a, from a scientific perspective. But no, it, it's not particularly surprising. We you know, we know that, that kiwi have a great sense of smell, that they're mainly active at night and therefore colour wouldn't be particularly useful to them. So it's, it's very cool to see it confirmed in this way, but it's not especially new information. That was Helen Taylor from the University of Otago. And now, Isabel Castro from Massey University. Isabel is a behavioural ecologist who works with North Island brown kiwi in the wild. We know that kiwi have a poor eyesight, they have some adaptations for nocturnal viewing, but their, their sense is quite underdeveloped, and they have a fantastic sense of smell. They have a very big area of the brain that is devoted to the sense of smell, very small area for the eyesight compared to other species of birds and, and animals, but a very large one for the sense of smell. Now, you've done quite a lot of field work with kiwi, investigating that sense of smell and how they use it. Can you describe some of the things you've done and some of the things you've seen? So one of the things that you notice when you're working with kiwi in the wild is that they use both the sense of smell and the sense of touch for everything they do. So they, they smell and touch their conspecifics. They smell and touch the equipment that we leave in the field to do any of our work. And um, they also come and investigate it very closely. Sometimes it looks like they might even have a little bit of, of vision to look at the things that we leave in the field for them. So they seem to use a range of senses, mostly the sense of smell and the sense of touch. And that's what they use when they're travelling around in the forest at night? When they travel in the forest at night, they don't seem to us to be using the sense of smell so much. They use their bill and, they, and therefore the sense of touch because they have a very, very sensitive organ at the end of the bill. Uh, which actually senses like a hand uh, different things in the environment. And, they, and, and you know how people describe them as an old uh, blind person walking with a stick? So their bill touches everything as they walk around. And, uh, you know, I've seen them crossing bridges and then, you know, small bridges like boards that we've put in, the, in between the streams and uh, the shores of the stream for us to walk, and they use them. And I see them that they touch the edge of either side of that bridge in order to go across. I have some really cool videos on that one as well. So they're using touch to travel. What are they using their sense of smell for? We've done experiments, which unfortunately in this paper they didn't uh, reference us on that one, but we used uh, experiments in captivity where you can actually see that they're using the sense of smell to find prey. And they also use the sense of touch because they can sense the vibrations of the prey under the ground. In the fields, when you're watching them, it seems to me that a lot of the time they are using the sense of vibration, that sense of touch, to find the prey underground. 
But um, I've carried out many experiments looking at olfaction, looking at um, different smells. I put different smells in front of the barrels, and they have to decide what to do with them. And um, you see some really amazing behaviors. One of them in particular is fascinating. It's a hover that they do on top of whatever you leave there, like a smelly thing like kiwi poo. So we put kiwi feces in front of them, and they hover. They use their bill to hover on top of it like a machine. And I think that what they're doing in that is to actually get some information about the smell of it. And then often after they hover for a while, they touch it. What did we already know about the genetics of smell? Did we know anything about Kiwi genetics? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, There is a group headed by a guy called Steiger, and they did some work. Uh, looking at the the DNA as well of Kiwi, but a different technology than what this new group is doing. And what this new group is doing is kind of like a more advanced way of, of looking at it. So they can look at it in more detail than we had before. But we already knew that Kiwi had a lot of olfactory receptor genes. Uh, so we already knew that they were ahead from other species of birds, for example. So what does this new paper add to our knowledge? It let us know that they probably can smell more things. So that's one thing that I found fascinating is that they might be more sensitive to many more smells than we ever saw before. So that's an interesting thing. That also goes together with the the type of experiments that I've done with kiwi where we present them, for example, with things like banana skins, and they're really fascinated by that. And, uh, you know, the smell of the banana skin seems to be quite interesting to them, and they hover quite a bit on that. Um, and besides, they touch it as well later on, but, you know, so have some really interesting things in there. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was interesting that they said is that, you know, this, the eye is very small in kiwi, and in mammals that occupy similar niches to kiwi, their eyes are usually quite large. But they reckon that in birds, the, eye, this eye, the size of the eye is related for some reason with the size of the bird and the metabolic rate of the bird. And kiwi have a very small metabolic rate. So they say maybe that has a connection in there, which it doesn't have it in mammals. What did they have to say about vision? They found that they had very few genes for color vision. There was one New Zealander in this group, that's Leon Huinen, who used to work uh, at Massey University with David Lambert. And David Lambert is also an author in this paper, so that's kind of the New Zealand connection in there, and even though David is an Australian. But there is another uh, researcher who is a New Zealander who's been looking at the morphology of the brain and the morphology of uh, all the associated organs of sense. And he actually had a look at the kiwi eyes. And he found that there was a, you know, uh, because of the structure, he could tell that it was very reduced. It was less important uh, for kiwi. But he also found that there were some adaptations to nocturnality such as, for example, being able to see in the infrared, perhaps, because they had some of the rods and the cones that were uh, important for that type of vision. So they can't see blue and green, but they, they see... They cannot, yeah. This, the, in this paper now, they are finding that they cannot see certain colours, which is quite an interesting thing. It makes sense. I mean, blue and green probably not very useful at night. You know, probably at night you want to see what blacks and whites, you know. One of the interesting things for me in this paper is that they talk about what the genes tell us about when kiwi became nocturnal and became ground foraging. And Absolutely. that's quite a long time ago. That they, They're saying 
30 to 38 million years ago, around 35 million years. But that is actually not very long ago when you consider what happens to mammals and how long does it take for them. That's what I found fascinating as well, how quickly, and that might have something to do with the fact that they were on an island and pressure must have been quite strong. They suggest it was pressure from Moa. Yeah, but I'm not sure if I agree with that. You know, I was thinking about that and I was thinking Moa were really large birds and they were herbivorous. In which way would they have competed with kiwi, you know? So you're not convinced by that argument? I'm not that convinced about that. I, I actually have other ideas about some of these characteristics of kiwi, uh, not, not the nocturnality necessarily, but some of the, the slow growth rates, the slow metabolic rates, and, and competition with a uh, niche of birds in here which were all eating invertebrates. So I think that that has a relationship to that. But in terms of the nocturnality, I'm not so sure that I agree as because of the MOA because they didn't seem to have competition, a real competition between them. I don't know. What do you think? I have to say I'm with you on that one. I didn't think that was the most compelling argument mm. I've heard. Yeah, just because it is another rata, it doesn't really necessarily mean that they're going to compete. That was Isabel Castro from Massey University. And finally, I catch up with Neil Gemmell, a genetics and genomic researcher at the University of Otago. North Island Brown Kiwi Genome, um, how significant is that? It's a pretty major achievement um, because Kiwi genomes are a little bit bigger than most bird genomes. Uh, it's the first Kiwi genome sequenced in its entirety. And uh, I think it would be a really useful resource for future Kiwi research in New Zealand. Um, and it will also probably be an important genome in terms of understanding the evolution of, of the ratites, um, and in particular the evolution of flightlessness and, and in fact how the Kiwis um, have differentiated from those other uh, ratite groups. Is there work underway to do the genomes of any of our other Kiwi species? Well, it's funny you should ask us because that's exactly what we're trying to do at the moment. Um, so there's been quite a lot of work done on little spotted kiwis and uh, by people like Christina Ramstead, who was at Victoria University in Wellington until relatively recently. Um, and also uh, there's been quite a lot of genetic work done by Helen Taylor, who's a postdoctoral fellow now in my research group. And with Christina's work, they've, they've focused predominantly on the transcriptome. So this is the genes that are actually expressed in the, in the animal, uh, whether it be in the blood or other tissues. And so that gives us an idea of what the functional genes may be. And Christina actually, I think, has a paper currently under review at Genome Research, which is quite a prestigious journal, looking at that transcriptome and what, what's been found there. So the, so the genome, per se, hasn't been done for other species, but I think with the brown kiwi genome now sequenced, it should be easier to do the others. Because you're not trying to assemble things from a blank slate, you're working from a framework where you can actually take the sequences that you generate from the other kiwi species and you just you align those against that matrix and that makes it a heck of a lot easier to do the work. Does it matter that this genome of one of our iconic birds was sequenced by a group that's entirely overseas, doesn't include any New Zealand based researchers? Is that a problem? I don't know if it's a problem, it's certainly a little bit uh, disappointing. Uh, that there isn't more genomic sequencing on, uh, underway in New Zealand because we have the capability to do that. But I think we just have to accept that this, this happens from time to time. I remember there was quite a lot of kerfuffle when the American bald eagle was going to be sequenced by a, a Chinese group 
um, and there was a lot of politics around that, and, and eventually some major sequencing groups in the United States just said they would do it, and they did. I think that it does raise some issues around, you know, what benefit might derive from the data. I mean, from an academic perspective, it's doesn't really matter who sequences it. Um, it's what we do with the information and how that might benefit Kiwi conservation and our understanding of Kiwi. Um, that's not going to be altered in any way, shape or form by who did it. Um, but if there's any proprietary information that is contained within that genome or anything that has potential commercial benefit, and I don't know if there is, um, I would argue that genome sequences are don't have a great deal of commercial benefit. The, the benefit derives later from the discoveries that, that may be made uh, from that information, and that will require huge amounts of downstream work. But I can imagine that there may ultimately be concerns around ownership of that information and intellectual property and um, the implications for claims like the Y262 claim on through the Treaty of Waitangi uh, and, and the rights of Māori to the knowledge from indigenous flora and fauna. So, so that remains an area that will be debated, but I must admit not being expert in that area. So maybe there will be some concerns, but I don't think there should be major concerns. I mean, you know, we wouldn't be worried if somebody went out and sequenced a bunch of flu viruses um, that might have arisen in New Zealand uh, because we just want to have that information so we can develop better vaccines. So I think we have to take a community approach. Why don't we do more genomic sequencing here? Is it a matter of cost? Well, I think it is a matter of cost. It's a matter of, um, you know, by the numbers. So we do do quite a lot of genomic sequencing. So as, I, as I'm sure you know, we've, we've been sequencing the Tuatara genome here for a while. There are a number of other genomes that have been sequenced by New Zealand groups, including the sheep, and you know, there's been contributions to the bovine genome. Um, my group's been sequencing uh, a number of other species, including we're just starting the New Zealand robin. Um, it, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's entirely tractable, but with finite resources we have to make decisions about what we do sequence, and, and we, we, we literally can't sequence all of the things within you know, the timeframes that we would like to do. That was Neil Gemmell from the University of Otago, and that's all from me, Alison Balance. In this special Our Changing World feature, investigating the publication of the North Island Brown Kiwi Genome. To find out more, you can visit our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World.